structures of thinking or the moves that people make in order to turn those bad things into the good book uh, is what I'm interested in and calling Bible benevolence labor. I'm Mitch. And I'm Missy. We're co-workers. He's the boss and we're married. And she's the boss. Together, we host Good Faith Weekly, a podcast on faith and culture. What could possibly go wrong? Tune in and find out. Missy. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, Missy and I want to wish each and every one of you a happy new year. And then later on in the pod, we sat down with Dr. Jill Hicks Keaton, who is a newly appointed associate professor of religion at the University of Southern California. Dr. Hicks Keaton has a brand new book out entitled Good Book, How White Evangelicals Save the Bible to Save Themselves. And this is a fantastic conversation. So we're Glad that you're with us. Start the new year out right. It's going to be a great episode. Happy New Year there, Missy. Happy New Year to you as well. It's good that uh, we're back after taking a week off. We're back. Trying to get back into a routine. Yeah. Are you, are you feeling the routine yet? No. <laughs> it's I'm been a little weird, hasn't it? Struggling. Yeah. Yeah. We have gotten into a really bad habit of staying up. Way too late. Yes. Sleeping in a little bit. Well, I mean, we've watched some good football games this week. We've Yeah, we've watched a lot of good good yeah. stuff. So, I mean, do you have, I mean, it all both, I mean, it, this began a long few weeks ago, right. your introduction into college football. My season of college yeah, football. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So, do you have a prediction for the national champion? Um, I would like to see the Huskies win it. Uh, I agree. I don't think they are. <laughs> I don't know. Do you? I don't know. I, mean, I don't know. We'll have to see. I mean, Michigan on, looked really good. They got a great defense. Yeah, I'm not based this on anything yeah. other than just. But Washington's got a great I, offense too. I mean, they, I, they, I would like to see them win yeah, it. So, Anyways. all right. Well. Okay, so it's the new year. It is 2024. And when you think of New Year, what do you think of? New Year's resolutions. New laws. Oh, new laws. Duh. <laughs> Those two. (laughs) (laughs) So I've been hearing and reading a lot about the new laws that are taking into effect. And of course, as we can imagine, there are lots of ridiculous laws um, restricting health care, gender affirming health care and and those of the like. And we're just we're not going to talk about those today. Mm -hmm. I thought we could maybe talk about a few that I deem as a move in the right direction. Okay, okay. I cannot wait to hear So let's this just move. clarify that. I, okay. I mean, you know, I don't have the full text of the laws, but I just wanted to highlight some of that. It would be fun to kind of kind of look over um, if our listeners haven't heard about all of this. Um, so the state of Illinois is prohibiting book bans in libraries. Well, good for them. Right, yeah. That's great. Pat on the back. Um, so California has... Um, instituted a law that Mm -hmm. says that officers must inform drivers why they have been pulled over before they begin any questioning. Really? Wow. That's, I think that's really smart, both for the officer and for the individual that they've stopped. Right. I just kind of wonder why they had to do that. Do you know? (laughs) Well, let me think. Let me scratch Mm -hmm. my head a little bit. uh, Who tends to get pulled over more than any other? Anyways. Okay. I digress. Um, 22 states are raising their minimum wages. 
Really? I bet you'll never guess which state is not one of those. I'm guessing it looks like a pan. <laughs> right. It might be the one you're sitting in right yeah, now. Yeah. Just I'm, saying. I'm, well, let me ask you this. Are we lowering the minimum wage? Well, I mean, we might be. So California will also be, um, Californians, I'm sorry, will be barred from carrying guns in most public places. I think that's a good idea. So I think there's been some legal maneuvering around this and, and some a court involvement. Yeah, there was an it, injunction at the last yeah. moment, and then it was repealed, and so the law is actually in effect now. So we have a whole group of laws dealing with reproductive care, again, that I deem as a move in the right direction. I, or at yeah, least I, I understand. To prevent the wrong direction. Okay, so right. California, again, California, yeah, California, um, will legally shield its doctors when they ship abortion pills or gender-affirming medications to states that have criminalized such procedures. Wow. So, and I know for physicians, this is a big thing as they're trying to learn to navigate new laws right. around lots of things of what can they, can't they do, and are they free to treat their patient as they see fit? So yeah. that's an interesting development. Um, New Jersey pharmacists will be allowed to dispense self-administered hormonal contraceptives to patients without a prescription. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow, that's interesting. That seemed pretty big to me. Mm-hmm. Um, law enforcement officers in Illinois will be prohibited from sharing license plate reader data with other states to protect women coming for an abortion. I know that's a mouthful, but that's pretty That's big. It's very important, yeah. Okay, in New York... Uh, they are now required, the state schools, middle and high schools, are required to provide menstrual products for free in the bathrooms. I didn't know they didn't. <laughs> well, I mean, I can't imagine how you wouldn't know such things. I just assumed they were free. You never had to, in school, in middle school, like do the whole to your friend, like, hey, you got something I can borrow? You never had to do that? Well, yeah, but it was something else. <laughs> <laughs> So, in Pennsylvania, new laws will add protections for female inmates. The fact that this has to be even a law is crazy. But the state is now banning the shackling and solitary confinement of pregnant incarcerated women and full body searches of female inmates by male guards. Oh, my gosh. You got to be kidding me. Why do we have to state this? It's kind of like the McDonald's cup. Like, the contents may be hot. Yeah. It's like, but... Because if there's a law, you know, someone has done that in the past. Well, I mean, just, I mean, lots have done that, unfortunately. Yeah, but it's it just, just it's oh baffling that we have to do this. So um, in California, I'm sure our listeners have heard about this one. It's been on every news mm-hmm. station that I've turned on. Large retailers will be required to provide gender-neutral sections of children's toys or child care products. Really? Yes. So I think That's interesting. if you have... More than a certain number. Basically, large retailers yeah. are required to do a gender gender neutral toy section. Yeah. And I think I think although I don't have it in my notes, this came from an eight year old who basically said, "Why does the store get to tell me what's a boy if it's toy, a girl what's a girl toy, toy, or a boy yeah. toy?" And so that's I, interesting. I thought about this, and I thought about my childhood mm-hmm. because I was a bit of a tomboy, mm-hmm. and kind of thought about that from my childhood perspective, what would that have looked like for me? Because in, again, I, I was known for wearing, I was always in cutoff shorts and a white Hanes t-shirt. That's just what I wore. But and also, how things have changed. No, I mean, nothing has changed. <laughs> but, but I also would have 
I would go to church wearing that with my grandmother's costume jewelry <laughs> and a purse. Love it. And so picture this, you know, me, I mean, and again, yeah. back in the day, cutoff shorts weren't something you buy. They right. were something you made because your jeans got too short. So yeah. they were my brother's old literal mm-hmm. jeans that had been cut off yeah. and then a white Hanes undershirt. Mm-hmm. And then my grandmother's gaudy, like clip on earrings and necklace <laughs> and a purse. I think oh, there were gloves involved you sometimes. just sparkled. <laughs> right. But I mean, I mean, think about this. So, and thankfully my mother was good with this and she just let it roll. Right. But I wonder what would have gone on in my mind had I not been told going into the store if I wanted to go buy a soccer ball yeah. or something like that, if I hadn't been going into the other section. Right. I don't know what that would have looked like for me. Yeah, I don't know. That would have been very interesting. So, it would be interesting today. And in a move, because I know there's probably a lot of people who are up in arms about this and why do we oh, need sure. to not let boys be boys and girls be girls. Mm-hmm. I want to provide another little anecdote, which you might remember from my college days of nannying, mm-hmm. in which um, when Happy Meals would do girl toys and boy toys. You remember this? Yes. Okay, so I was nannying for two little boys. Mm-hmm. Who were very much all boy right. in, in the context of what we would prescribe sure. to that. But they, in the Happy Meals, they used, they were doing Barbies. Right. And they were like the little kind of miniature sized Barbies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. And these, my, my little boys, um, they wanted those little Barbies because they were the same size as their Power Rangers and G.I. Joes. Right. And so for them, that was, you know, the female counterpart. They wanted to have to so that their GI Joes could get married or whatever. Yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. And so I remember going through the drive-thru and ordering Happy Meal toy or Happy Meals and they would say, Oh, for girl or boy. Mm-hmm. And then I would have to say, Well, for girl, but then the boys in the back would get mad thinking yeah. I'd called them girls. Right. And I'm like, Well, we need Barbies. And they're like, girl or boy. And they would make me say that. Yeah. And so it's like in this car of two little kids who are very much into gender norms. Sure who needed the Barbies for a very gender um, heteronormative purpose. (laughs) (laughs) They felt like they were being misgendered. And so let's let the fundamentalists like wrap their brains around that that one for a minute, because, you know, I just, so I just think, okay, what if it wasn't, if things weren't always so gender specific, Mm -hmm. you know, anyways, I don't know that that. No, I think it's very interesting. And, you know, we're seeing a lot more of that non, binary, non-gender conformity in society. And, you know, I think it's a healthy thing, to be quite honest with you. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not, it, it, a lot of people try to uh, say that that these normatives are being replaced. I don't think they're being replaced. I think that there's an addition to it. It doesn't have to be either or. It's just, let's recognize, you know, the advantages of, of doing things like this. And I, so I think it's a positive step. I think so too. So I have one last little law to talk about here. And I want to know if you can perhaps guess, because this comes from the state of New Jersey again. Mm -hmm. So it says, while this law went into effect in December, it might be the best example of state legislative consensus in 2023, having passed 38 to zero in the Senate and 74 to zero in the General Assembly. Wow, so this impressive. bill passed unanimously okay. in the year of our Lord, 20 and 23, yes. in a state legislature. So, so tell me, what do you think this law might be pertaining to? I'm guessing it's a raise for, for the legislatures. <laughs> That's very smart, no. No, what, what is it then? Telemarketers. <laughs> 
<laughs> banning telemarketers. No, no, they didn't go that far. <laughs> but they basically enacted new rules about what they can say and can't say and how they have to identify themselves. Right. But I thought if there's anything that is more indicative of the time and place we live in right now, as polarized it. and as divided as we are, but the one thing that we can unite behind as a society we all hate telemarketers. is telemarketing calls. So those are those are my laws. Oh my god. There are of course many, many yeah, more, yeah. but those are some okay, of so highlights. Just so that I know I'm in compliance. Are there any new laws in 2024 at the Randall House that oh I need to, <laughs> to make certain that I'm you know, complying with these days? Wow, that is a great question. <laughs> and I'm going to check the records and I will come back. To because see. I know there's a lot of things that were passed in 2023. Right. <laughs> I'm sure if okay. they were, okay. All right. Let me think about that. We'll come back next week with some new laws in 2024 <laughs> okay. for the office and the house. Excellent. Excellent. So the next thing I want to um, talk about, and my apologies in advance, because I've had a few days to reflect on these questions and you have not. Right. But a friend of mine um, posted, you know, cause everybody's posting resolutions and sure. things like this. I don't really do resolutions because it, I see a resolution as just setting myself up for failure, which I do on a daily anyways. So I don't need to add to that. Do you do resolutions? No. Okay. I didn't think you did either, but I saw a neat little post is um, three questions. The first one is what do you want more of in 2024? Wow, what do I want more of in 2024? Um, yeah. Boy, that's a great question. And there's a lot of different ways I could take that. Mm -hmm. um, but I think just I want more stability because the world seems to be so unstable. And coming out of the pandemic, you know, I think we're that is way in the rearview mirror now. But it seems like, unfortunately, the world has tried in an attempt to try to find its new normal. It's just in chaos again. <laughs> okay. So I love that you said that because what? do you know what my answer is? What? what I want more of in 2024? What? Chaos. <laughs> 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 it's literally written in my phone, but let me explain. Okay. I want more men losing their minds because Taylor Swift has taken over their beloved football game. <laughs> I want more Christian fundamentalists losing their minds about drag queen Christian artists. I want more of that kind of chaos. Okay. I want more of the fun chaos. The fun I want chaos, more yeah. football, like ridiculous ending to games that we saw in the fall, right, that right. kind of chaos. Like let's have more of that. Okay. Okay. So, okay. So you want stability. I want chaos. <laughs> And mine has an asterisk. Word. Sure, absolutely. So what do you want less of in 2024? Oh, my goodness. What do I want less of? Less war. Um, I'm just, I'm growing extremely tired of the death tolls around the world, especially in Ukraine and in the Middle East. Uh, it's just a time, it's a time where we've got to be better as a people and look deep within ourselves, find our better angels uh, and find peace. Well, funnily enough, I want the same thing in less of in 2024 that I want more of. I want less chaos. <laughs> okay. So my answer is the same for both. Okay. But like you, yeah. I want less chaos due to strikes. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Less chaos due to war. In our personal lives, I want less chaos of, you know, I mean, I feel like we're getting there with our kids sure. again, graduated, settled, like mm. personally, just less personal chaos as well. So yeah. my answer is, is the same for both. 
Okay. It's just with qualifiers. Good answer. Good answer. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the last question is, what would you regret not doing in 2024? What would I regret not doing in 2024? I would regret not doing everything I can to make certain democracy remains front and center in the United States of America. Oh my gosh. Do you want to know what answer I have absolutely written down? What? Electing representatives to office who will protect our democracy. Oh, wow. Man, we are simpatico. I mean, it's like, <laughs> it's like it's meant to be. It's like we're suitable for one another. Well, those or, are great answers. Yeah, yeah. That's so funny. Yeah. So yeah, my my regret of not, something I, wait, what would you regret? What would you regret not doing in 2024 is, yeah, not electing people who are going to protect yeah. our democracy. So Absolutely. Perfect answer. Huh. So that's all I have for the intro. What have you brought today? <laughs> well, I have brought our guest this oh, week. Okay, true. Uh, so you and I get to sit down with Dr. Jill Hicks Keaton. She's got a brand new book out entitled Good Book, How White Evangelicals Save the Bible to Save Themselves. And this was just a great book. It challenged both of us in myriad of ways, spawned a lot of conversation uh, over the week. Uh, and we just had a great conversation with Jill. She was a terrific guest. We really did. And I'm not done yet. If you're my friend in real life, just know that you're probably getting this book and your, <laughs> your homework assignment is probably going to be to read it so we can talk about it because I still need some help. Um, not help, but I just I still want to talk about it. it it's just such a intellectually stimulating, but not overly, I mean, you know, very real, relatable. It's just, it's challenging. I mean, just yeah. a challenge, no matter where you are uh, in the theological spectrum, um, it just, it's challenging. It challenged me mm-hmm. and, you know, and a lot of the beliefs that I not only held a long time ago, but the beliefs I hold today. And mm-hmm. there's just, that's what I really enjoyed about the book uh, and our conversation with Jill. And I think uh, our audience will as well. And also Listen. just maybe. Missy's got a t-shirt idea, but you're going to have to stay tuned to find out what that is. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to have to crowdsource this. I need some help, but I'm excited about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, so stay tuned. Uh, Missy and I will be right back with Dr. Jill Hicks-Keaton. I've always been struck by the scriptures we avoid reading, the stories we don't want to tell in church. I'm Brett Harrison. That's what You've Never Read This, a new series from God Knows Where, is all about. We'll read from prophets and histories we've hidden from ourselves, even words of wisdom and warning from Jesus that we've likely never heard. As with everything we do here, God knows where this will lead us, but I hope you'll join me. Find God Knows Where on your favorite podcast platform. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, we've got a very special guest with us. Dr. Jill Hicks Keaton is an associate professor of religion at the University of Southern California. She was previously an associate professor of religious studies at the University of Oklahoma, where she taught courses on biblical literature, ancient Judaism, and Christianity and modern evangelism. Her most recent publication, Good Book, How White Evangelicals Save the Bible to Save Themselves, is currently available. Dr. Hicks Keaton, welcome to Good Faith Weekly. Thank you for having me. So, Professor, I we were just telling you before we started to record that this book has inspired lots of conversation for us. We had a long holiday weekend um, over New Year's in which we, we both worked through it and just have been talking about it nonstop. So thank you for that. I, we both learned so much. 
um, and just were forced to kind of examine some of our own um, biases and, and preconceived notions that we brought to the table. But I want to start with this. I learned something about myself from listening to another interview you did while preparing for our conversation today. As our regular listeners and anyone who knows me personally knows, I am just a lover of alliteration. (laughs) Anything alliterative. And I learned from another conversation you were having that that might be from my Baptist roots. Is this true? (laughs) I mean, I'm not sure where it might come from for you, but that strikes me as very plausible. Uh, (laughs) That is for sure where it came from. I mean, you know, youth group in a Baptist church in the South. Yeah, we so love alliteration. I, it helps you remember things. Yeah, so I was listening to your conversation with Brad Onishi about the book and where you were talking, he was asking you, and, and as it turns out, about our first question, which is Bible benevolence. And so you had mentioned that um, that probably came from your baptistries. I'm like, I've never thought about the the need for alliteration being one thing that, that I've kept from that. <laughs> so in any case. I find I, myself having to, to limit how much I use in writing because it gets more cutesy than might be acceptable, but it's useful in some cases. Well, I'm here for it. I support it. So you keep <laughs> keep going with it. In any case, one the theme of the book or, or the term that you talk about in the book is Bible benevolence. So let's just define that for our audience and, and explain how white Christian evangelicals use it to, quote, save scripture. Sure. Yeah. So this is sort of a, a term that I wanted to name a phenomenon that I was observing, but that others observe as well. And to my knowledge, there was there wasn't yet a sort of catchy way, a shorthand to name it. And that is the labor that goes into turning these ancient texts that are now part of a modern Bible into scripture. Um, and part of that process of scripturalizing the ancient texts into modern the modern Bible is that it's got to be turned into something good. Because if it's going to be a resource for people, if it's going to be a help, if it's something that um, Christians or others want other people to read and be affected by, um, it has to be good or else it, it wouldn't be uh, it wouldn't have the effect that people want it to have. So Bible benevolence is uh, labor is or Bible benevolence project. These are sort of shorthands for saying, hey, there's labor that goes into making the Bible into the good book, rhetorical labor, moral labor, um, and some strategic thinking and uh, creative strategies at some points. So in particular, there was a line that you used how, you know, people do this by saying, oh, sure. It sounds like our Bible says some terrible things, but that's just because you're not reading it right. But let me show you the rules. Let me show you how to interpret it. And so I thought that was really a poignant thing to point out. Yeah, there's things in the biblical texts that don't square entirely with modern moral sensibilities. Um, you think about a treatment of women or the normalization of slavery in the biblical text. These are things that need um, working with creatively in because that's the ancient text supports slavery and is thoroughly patriarchal. So, so anyone who has sort of a liberative reading of what the Bible is needs to explain in some way why there are bad things in the good book. 
and the the structures of thinking or the moves that people make in order to turn those bad things into the good book uh, is what I'm interested in and calling Bible benevolence labor. So, Joe, one of the things I really appreciated about the book, it really reminded me and recalled the days of uh, of my exploration of Scripture in searching for the historic Jesus or the historic Paul, uh, you know, trying to, to really understand who they were as a person in their time and culture and in their history. Uh, but you call the Bible that it can be both balm and poison for those who are reading it in a culture that reveres, if not outright worships the Bible. Why is it important to acknowledge both the balm and poison of the Bible? Yeah, so first let me attribute that uh, analogy to Alan Dwight Callahan, who wrote this fantastic book called The Talking Book, um, about how African-Americans historically in the United States have uh, received the Bible both as a poison book, um, but also as a book that provided resources for liberation. Um, And uh, that's a fantastic book. So I'll plug that one. Uh, And that analogy comes from him. And I think that for anyone who, and this is where the white evangelicalism in the U.S. comes in, I think that for anyone for whom um, it's never occurred to them that the Bible could be oppressive or terrifying, um, that that indicates a sort of level of, of privilege, that one has never been oppressed by Bible wielders, um, or has never been scared by um, the, the notions of deity that are are in the Bible. Um, but that's why it's important to recognize these things, because these texts have had different effects on different kinds of people historically, and some of them um, are now sort of universally agreed upon as bad, like when white Christians in the American South were um, biblicizing slavery, were supporting slavery by using biblical texts. So Jill, let's move on to one of the most intriguing notions of the book. You challenge both conservative and progressive evangelicals. For instance, when it comes to patriarchy, you write, For complementarians, the Bible mandates patriarchal social order, which in turn must be good for women because it's biblical. For egalitarians who reject patriarchal social order as normative, the Bible resists or outright appends patriarchy. In both instances, you claim that both engage in Bible gymnastics to reach those conclusions. So can you expand on that a little bit? Sure. Well, so I actually think that um, even though everybody when they read the Bible, no matter how they come down on social issues, including whether patriarchal social order is bad or good, um, everybody's bringing interpretive lenses. They're, um, you know, picking verses that are more important to them than other things in the Bible, um, differentiating between what they think is descriptive, what is just being described or prescriptive, what they think is a rule, right? So everybody's using some sort of framework. Um, but what becomes fascinating, I think, is that it's actually the folks who are more in step with a progressive social ethic, those who are anti-patriarchy, who have to do more of these mental gymnastics because these texts that have become Bible were written in antiquity in a time when no one was wondering, is patriarchal social order <laughs> bad or good. It was just normal. Okay. That may be an overstatement, but 
uh, it was very different from the sort of modern conversations that are happening, especially in white evangelicalism now. Um, and so the the creative work that it takes to make um, texts that were written by ancient patriarchal people for whom also slavery was normative um, in the social order, to turn that into something that is liberative for women now um, and to support um, what is typically called egalitarianism um, or sort of a Christian feminism, that means that you've got to read passages differently. You've got to use different hermeneutical or interpretive principles that help you as a Bible reader resist um, the normative social framework that would have provided the context in which the ancient folks wrote these texts. Um, having said that, <laughs> I, I feel it. I feel it's important to, to note that I think that both um, self-described complementarians and self-described egalitarians are reading the biblical text in such a way that patriarchy gets um, supported. Um, and so there's sort of this irony that the mental gymnastics that go into um, making the Bible egalitarian for those who are sort of pro-feminist causes, um, I think that in an ironic way, it's actually that those moves are supporting patriarchy uh, in a number of ways. But one of them is that it's sort of using the Bible to limit the idea of what or the, the notion of what feminism is and what it's its goals are, because it's also using the Bible as a framework for determining those. I thought you did such a great job of unpacking both of those things. You know, saying, well, the complementarians, this is what they do. This is the formula they use. And then the egalitarians, this is the formula that they use. But yet, just what you said, it all points back to patriarchy. So it's just, mm -hmm. in, in those of us who are many of us in some form or fashion of deconstructing of peeling back another layer and let's really look at this and see how all of these systems all of these gymnastics we're doing to make it make sense are still feeding into this idea and this construct of patriarchy mm -hmm. yeah that, that was the biggest challenge for me as a self-ascribed uh, egalitarian progressive of looking at these texts and the theological and hermeneutical gymnastics that I have to go through in order to make these texts make sense to me. What you really challenged me in was when we're talking about like the household codes uh, that Paul talks about and, you know, husband and wife relationship, uh, father or parent child relationship, uh, master slave relationship, and how I'll take the one set of texts dealing with the husband and wife and I filter that through this hermeneutical formula that I have, but then I don't do the very same thing with the other two codes. Uh, and you know, just the recognition that sometimes these texts historically are just what they are. They're, they're writing in a system that was normative to them, and maybe we shouldn't attempt to make, make those texts what they're not, I guess. Yeah, there are there are a lot of other ways to make the Bible benevolent than the ones that I, um, as a case study, am describing about white evangelicalism in this book. Um, and I think that it's worth just from like an ethical standpoint, anybody who wants to make the Bible into the good book to reflect on what are the consequences or the stakes 
of the moves I'm making in order to make the Bible benevolent. Um, and that is sort of an extra step of self-reflection um, that I think is is a useful. I'm, I'm glad to hear that you got something out of out of the book that pushed you sort of in that direction. Mm-hmm. Now, he even like flew downstairs during one <laughs> morning. I think it was New Year's Eve or maybe New Year's Day. And he said, have I done this to you? <laughs> he was pointing to a part of the book. <laughs> so, then it opened up a whole conversation about gender norms and where those come from and, you know, what are we still ascribing to? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, but I just, like I said, I really appreciated, I mean, even the egalitarian uh, interpretation of those, those passages of Scripture. I think we really do have to acknowledge the fact that we, too, are propping up the patriarchy. Uh, mm-hmm. by doing that. And I just, it was very challenging to me and I, and I really appreciate it. But Jill, there was one section in the book that was more challenging than any other. And you asked this very provocative and controversial question, is Jesus a misogynist? So <laughs> why is it so important to examine that question? And tell us a little bit about what you concluded. Yeah. Okay. So, um, I mean, this, this is intended to be a little bit provocative. So in this chapter on Jesus, I wanted to do something of a thought experiment, which is to say, if I take the gospel of Mark, which is our earliest uh, account of Jesus in the biblical text, and I think, okay, I'm going to use Jesus's behavior towards the women characters in this story as an example of how men should treat women um, or how women should factor into society, then what would that look like? <clears throat> and uh, and so I point out that if we're using Jesus's behavior in the Gospel of Mark as a model, then um, we have an example of him healing a woman who then doesn't leave the house, but instead engages in domestic service. Uh, that's Simon Peter's mother-in-law in Mark chapter 1. In another chapter, Jesus calls the Syrophoenician woman essentially a dog. Um, and so there are there are parts of Jesus's behavior in the Gospel of Mark that I think feminists today would say, actually, that's really a good model to be using. Um, And if we go to the Gospel of Mark with questions like, is does Jesus's behavior towards women liberate them from the constraints of patriarchy? I argue that the answer is no. And um, and so while I I think the I don't want to come out and say Jesus was a misogynist, um, but that is sort of the the hyperbolic way of saying we need to ask different questions about what misogyny is, what patriarchy is, and whether that model actually is the model that is appropriate within the context of a feminist ethic. Well, you should, I mean, you gave words to an idea that I think Missy and I, as we talked over the last couple of days, have been struggling with, is that we do see these moments of misogyny come out uh, of Jesus, such as the illustrations that you just pointed to, and they're problematic, and we do have to do these hermeneutical and interpretational dances to get around that, and in some cases, maybe it it is exactly what it is. Jesus is living and operating within the system in which 
he exists. And, you know, mm-hmm. I've always found it problematic that, you know, we we who are egalitarian and who are really supportive of women in ministry often advocate and point to uh, the women in the Bible that you point out uh, in your book. But at, at the end of the day, he chose 12 men to be apostles. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, how, how do you how do you square that? And, mm-hmm. and so I, it was, you're just being honest, Jill. And I really appreciate that. And, does that mean, and, <laughs> and then just raising the question of, are we working too hard to make this yeah. always good? Right. You know, mm-hmm. and what are we doing and what are we compromising and what are we still promoting by doing just that? Yeah, sure. So, Absolutely. Okay. So there's five chapters in the book. Two of them are devoted to Paul. <laughs> Making, In fact, a whole book probably should be dedicated to Paul. <laughs> I know, but it was much to my chagrin when I realized that two of the chapters were going to have to be on. Yeah, I mean, you can't, you can't not, you can't, right? You can't. I mean, obviously. So, but I love the titles, Making Paul Less Bad and then Making Paul Less Bad Again. Like, let's, let's try, let's try to figure this out. But you um, coined a new term for me, um, about, um, you're talking about the role of sex when it comes to the Pauline text and how evangelicals interpret and apply those texts. And the term you coined is, for me is pornodoxic. And then mm-hmm. you talk about biblical pornodoxy. And someday I'm going to figure out how to get that on a t-shirt. I'm not sure how yet. <laughs> I will credit you. <laughs> I love this. But w- tell us what those mean. And then, I mean, tell us the the, the million dollar question is why are white male evangelicals so obsessed and consumed with sex? <laughs> mm, that's a big question. <laughs> okay. So at Pornodoxy is also my cute neologism uh, to describe a phenomenon that I came to see over and over again in my research as I was just consuming a lot of these kinds of um, Bible benevolence projects or um, apologetics around the Bible in white evangelical circles. And the phenomenon that I found is that, hey, people, and specifically men, are inventing out there in, I mean they're using materials very creatively to do this ancient materials extra biblical texts um archaeological evidence in some cases to make up women who are sexually transgressive um against patriarchal social norms um which usually would tell them with whom they can have sex and under what circumstances um, and they're they're making up dangerous women in order to explain why Paul or Deutero Paul in the household codes um, and in in the in the first and second Timothy is telling women to be silent or is saying that women can't be leaders. Um, a frequent way of of explaining that is to make up a context that includes dangerous sexually transgressive women. And that's why the logic goes, Paul had to get them in line because they were not following the norms around um, sexual access to their bodies or sexual use of their bodies. So, but so the porn part comes from the idea that this is this is sexy. Um, it's a combination of pornographic and orthodoxy, and it's orthodoxy in there because what I found is that in each case, as these 
women are being invented by these white evangelical men, that it serves to provide for their women readers what they themselves can and can't do with their bodies in order to be acceptable in the Christian church. Um, and so it is providing boundaries for how women can use their bodies. So that's sort of the orthodoxy part, like telling people what they can and can't do. So you combine those and you get pornodoxy. So I love in, it. <laughs> in a nutshell, it's making up women in antiquity who are sexy in order to control the sex lives of women today. Yeah, you give an example of, um, again, white males using fictional stories you know, ancient fictional stories to then, you know, classify all women of the time. And you give a great example from modern times of the movie, The Wedding Planner. Would you mind just very briefly kind of touching on that? Because I think it's a sure. great, great parallel. Yeah, so there's this ancient novel by uh, Xenophon about a young woman na named Anthea. And um, New Testament scholar and white evangelical Scott McKnight um, wrote a book in which he draws on others, but he's a, a prime example of using this novel to fill out a picture of what women in ancient Ephesus were like as a context for the pastoral epistles. And one of the things that happens is that the fictional character, Anthea, for McKnight, becomes a real woman in ancient Ephesus, and then he extends her behavior to all women in ancient Ephesus. So I wanted to think of a modern analogy to sort of like show the wildness of what has to happen in order to make this logic work. So the modern analogy is The Wedding Planner, great movie, Jennifer Lopez, Matthew McConaughey. Um, if we were to say, use this in the same way that McKnight uses Xenophon's Anthea, we would look at Jennifer Lopez's character and say, Okay, in the 1990s, I think that's when it came out, right? I don't remember. In the 1990s, <laughs> it was really common for women to become wedding planners so that they could ensnare a husband. Um, and so not only would it be taking Jennifer Lopez's behavior and saying that's the behavior of a real woman, it would be generalizing that same behavior to all women. And I don't think that anybody, this is what I say in the book, I don't think anybody would go into a screening of the wedding planner and have a meltdown about the idea that women are becoming <laughs> wedding planners to steal men. But it works really well for pastors behind pulpits. <laughs> well, I mean, th yeah. this whole idea and concept has just driven me crazy for decades. And I can remember sending a doctoral seminar uh, at a particular college in Texas, uh, arguing with uh, fellow seminarians as well as professors, arguing the point of women dressing modestly. Mm. And it was like, well, why isn't the conversation, why is the conversation always surrounding women? Why isn't, it's, you mentioned the Billy Graham rule, or we may call it the Mike Pence rule these days. Um, mm -hmm. And why, why is it always that the, the, the female is the temptress in that narrative? Mm -hmm. And it's their responsibility uh, to make certain that men don't act in egregious and terrible ways. When the reality is, why isn't the onus on the men? <laughs> They're the ones doing this. Uh, but I think you do a really good job in the book, uh, kind of defining that and calling out 
what it really is. Well, thank you. Yeah. So in another section of the book, again, about Paul, uh, you bring out uh, a book by Beth Allison Barr, uh, which was very popular last year, The Making of Biblical Womanhood. She was actually a guest on our show when the book came out. But what I really liked about this section was the fact that you again once you once again reiterate the idea that in order for us to get to some of these conclusions that egalitarians get myself included we have to bring outside sources in to do that when in actuality maybe the bible is just exactly what it is and nothing more so here's my question for people of faith who hold the Bible dear and you know, were taught at a young age that the Bible is authoritative for their faith and practice, and that maybe it's not inerrant, but it's certainly filled with truth for them. What I think, and tell me if I'm wrong, what I think you're trying to say is that even though there are problems within the Bible, let's be honest about those problems and what exactly the Bible is saying. But it doesn't necessarily negate the fact that the Bible cannot be applicable to our faith and practice, that let's just be honest about what we're reading. I think that would be, a, I would be very pleased with that outcome if if readers like you are describing um, read this book and think, okay, I need to be more careful or diligent about what the um, stakes and consequences are of of what I'm doing when I make the Bible into the good book. Um, and there are a lot of other models for how to make the Bible into scripture that, um, you know, some people might read my book and they'll say, I have never heard of any of these Bible benevolence moves. What are these, these you know, people doing out there that, <laughs> like, it sounds crazy to me. I've never seen it before. Um, and they might say, like, I'm not, my Christianity is not challenged by the idea that Jesus called the Syrophoenician woman a dog. Mm-hmm. Um, their sort of, their faith experience can tolerate cr- moral critique of the Bible. And and I think that that's, uh, that's something important to, for for everyone to realize is that there are other ways of seeing what the Bible is. We, I would call that like biblicism, different kinds of biblicism that can accommodate um, more than white evangelical Christian biblicism critiques of uh, what is in the Bible. If anybody reads my book and thinks to themselves, I wonder what am I doing Bible benevolence wise and uh, am I happy with that, with what I'm doing? Or are there alternatives to how I can find meaning from the text um, and not engage in making up sexy women uh, or um, overestimating the generosity of Jesus on the pages? I think that would be great. Well, Jill Hicks-Keaton, thank you so much for joining us this week on Good Faith Weekly. Again, congratulations on the new position at the University of Southern California, and you're welcome back anytime. We really appreciate your time with us. But before we let you go, Jill, we've got one last question that we ask every guest. Missy? So, Jill, as you know, our tagline at Good Faith Media is, there's more to tell. So, in light of your work and our conversation today, what is your more to tell? 
So I'm going to do a teaser for something that we didn't talk about, but that might make some folks interested in the book. Um, So the Syrophoenician woman is a really famous story from the Gospel of Mark. And uh, I have found in teaching biblical literature in Oklahoma, what my students didn't realize is that in the Gospel of Matthew, this woman is called a Canaanite woman. So the writer of Matthew has taken the story from Mark and given her a different ethnic identity, one that did not exist at the time of Jesus. So the Canaanites were the long lost old enemies of Israel. Um, And I think it's helpful to see this as a Bible benevolence move, that even in the Bible itself, there is a gospel writer who reads a story about Jesus, and maybe it was like, what are you doing, Jesus? That was rude. I'm going to try to explain that a little bit more. And then Luke, this is my teaser, Luke has an even more extreme way of making the Bible benevolent on this point. And I will leave you to read my book to find out. <laughs> I love it. The book is Good Book, How White Evangelicals Save the Bible to Save Themselves. It's currently available wherever you purchase books. So make certain uh, to buy this book. You will not regret it. It is certainly a page turner. So Jill, thank you so much for being with us this week on Good Faith Weekly. Thank you for hosting me. Missy, I don't know about you, but it's been a while since a book has challenged me as much as Jill's book challenged me. Yes. And I, since the interview ended and we had a couple of minutes to transition, we both said, oh, I wish we'd talked about this. (laughs) I wish we'd asked about this. I wish we'd had time to talk about this. It really is a great book. We encourage everybody to pick it up. And it, what we said during the interview is absolutely true. It has spurred some really great, um, challenging conversations just in our, in our home, you know, you and me. But also internally, I mean, just kind of understanding how, strong this system is that we have grown up in and how it still affects us today, even though we're attempting to grow and mature in our faith, that it's still present. That's what's crazy about it. Right. And in the, in, you know, we talk about, again, the title is good book. And and one of the themes is her showing us how we in Christianity have done literal backflips to make it be the good book right? and how, what it takes to do that and examining those processes. And let's look at this really, but it, after the interview, you and I started talking and I want to, I want to share this with our audience and maybe us unpack it a little bit, but early on in your career, you know, kind of the big buzzword within fundamentalism or the buzz question when, when, you know, anytime you challenge anything that, that a pastor says or a theologian says is, you know, their response would be, your problem is not with me, it's with the Bible, right? right? Sure. Is that how it was said? Yeah, that's exactly how it was said. And so then you're, you know, again, your automatic thinking is, oh, no, my problem's not with the Bible. My problem is with your interpretation of the Bible. Right. Um, which is how I feel like the foundation that you leaned on in your academic career and in, in your professional career of, you know, understanding that it's it's your interpretation might be your, I mean, a general your, somebody's interpretation may be flawed. Mm-hmm. But now, after reading this book, you said what? 
what if my problem is actually with the Bible? <laughs> that's a difficult question. So to, what if the fundamentalist pastor was right, is what I hear you saying. Yeah, yeah. That your problem... Wait a minute, wait a minute. That's your, going way too far. <laughs> your problem is actually with the Bible. Right. And what happens when that is true? Yeah, that is an excellent question. And that's why this book was so challenging for me. Because if you think about it, the fundamentalist and the progressive, while they argued about different topics and ways to apply the Bible, there was this kind of social agreement between the two parties that the Bible was the source, the authoritative source for which they were gleaning and practicing their faith. And that was always the conversation that I would have with fundamentalists. And as you rightly said, their response was always, you know, your argument is not with me, it's with the Bible. And then I retorted a moment ago, as you pointed out, well, what if my problem is with the Bible? Well, I think that might be the case in some of these instances, because for centuries now, we have held the Bible to this incredible esteem, even those of us who you know, claim that it is not, um, that it's not literal, that it's not uh, inerrant, uh, that take a real historical, critical eye to it, but still allow it to guide our faith and practice. We still have a high regard for the Bible, and I still do. But, Missy, there are things in the Bible that are problematic. Right. And I am trying to come to grips with how to not only approach those, but what to do with those when it pertains to my faith. You know, some of the texts that we've talked about, even outside this book, have been, for example, the Abrahamic calling, where Yahweh tells Abraham that he's given Abraham and his generations this promised land. What about the people who were living there? <laughs> you know, what's going to happen there? Uh, so we're talking about invasion. And then once they invade, you know, Yahweh tells them to go into these cultures and to kill all these people. What do we do with that? How does that apply to our faith today? And then in the New Testament, the, the text that we talked with Jill about, what do we do with those? And we really do have to do some theological hermeneutical gymnastics to get where we want to get. And we don't even realize we're in the middle of the routine. Right, until exactly. It, we just don't. And that's what I love about her book and is that she exposes some of those areas because we like to think that we're starting from a place of, you know, on the corner of the mat, and we're really not. We're starting midway through. We're already in it. We just don't even realize we're in it. Because yeah, And I love this analogy, and to take it even further, is, you know, I mentioned some of the texts that I've always had problems with, uh, you know, even some of the actions of Jesus that, you know, while I've tried to make Jesus more benevolent when it comes to his relationship with women and women in leadership, you know, at the end of the day, he still chose 12 disciples who were men, or 12 men to be disciples and apostles eventually. Um, and so even when I was making those arguments to draw this analogy to a conclusion, even when I felt like I was sticking the landing, I really felt like I wasn't sticking the landing, that there was something problematic about it in this gymnastics that I was trying to do There's to just make not these arguments. a landing to yeah. be had. There's right. really not. Yeah. And that's what I think, and bringing it back around to specifically kind of the topic of, of 
the book is the patriarchy and and she talks about um the patriarchy as a system within government or the state that benefits those in power and all these things and and then she she kind of draws the parallel about how we have theologized it is that a word yeah um but something that she one of the statements i want to point out to to make my point to make her point i guess is um she says paul's household codes can also be read as more stringent by comparison because they introduce a surveillance by a deity as an enforcing mechanism. Mm-hmm. So if you so to expand on that, you take a system of government, a system of culture, a societal system that is wholeheartedly steeped in patriarchy. Men are in control. They get to dictate what all others do. You know, in our context, we would say, you know, white men, mm-hmm. you know, um, are in control. As a woman living in that system or a person, you know, who's not on top living in that system, you think, I don't like this system. Right. It's, I feel it's wrong. I am existing in it and will find ways to cope. But now you're going to go and tell me that there is an invisible surveyor of my behavior all the time. And that person policing it is my oppressor you know, the person that the the deity is speaking to, Mm -hmm. you know, because that was the belief is that God spoke to the men. And if the men were in control, so it, when you, and I know it seems obvious, but it was kind of a little bit of a light bulb moment because you're taking a system that was just societal governmental and now bringing it into a faith where now there's a surveillance, a deity surveilling you all the time. Think about how that takes the the level of control and manipulation just exponentially more broad mm-hmm. and how that has enabled the system to survive mm-hmm. for all these years. Does yeah. that make sense? It makes I, perfect sense. I'm and trying as to parse you, this out. No, well, as I was sitting there listening to you, there's one thing that came to mind. The way you're describing it, it's simply elf on a shelf. <laughs> Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's Elf on the Shelf that goes and reports to Santa Claus who's good and who's bad, and there are consequences to that report. Right. And so that's, I mean, it's just like, you know, you're constantly being surveyed, or, or surveyed, uh, you know, yeah. in everything that you do. And there's this, this report to this uh, mysterious deity or figure that determines whether you are good or whether you are bad and based upon that report and based upon that surveillance the conclusions are drawn and there are results based upon those conclusions but in our context that elf is not an elf it's your husband and you are the one that has the right and the responsibility to report to you and what she's talking yeah. about in the book is in the household codes the the wife submitting and then the husband loving as Christ loved the church, the husband loving you as Christ loved the church is contingent upon you submitting. You have to do the good behavior first. The slave has to submit to their master. You know, the children have to obey their parent. That is true. To do the behavior first before you get the reward. Right. And so, you know, exposing that as problematic and, or, you know, just the system that we've again, built our whole theology on. And as I, I follow several, um, women either online or through podcasts who have escaped extreme fundamentalism. Mm -hmm. 
And this just speaks so highly to their experience. Thankfully, I have not had that same experience of, of that type of control being abused Mm -hmm. in a really gross way Mm -hmm. of somebody making you believe that they have absolute authority over you Mm -hmm. um, and over your behavior and is still, you know, when you're a a fully functioning autonomous adult Mm -hmm. being um, just monitored in that way. Yeah. And it's, it's just, it's and that's awful. why you mentioned in the interview that I came downstairs after reading the book at one point and asked you if I had ever, you know, oppressed you in this way, even in an attempt to liberate or in an attempt to lift you up as an equal. It's almost the, why do you need me to do that? Or why, you know, what gives me the authority to lift you up? Uh, that really, messed with my mind Mm -hmm. because even in a genuine attempt to, uh, to fight and advocate for egalitarianism, you're still the one opening. I'm still opening the gate. It's it's, yes. (laughs) Yeah. Like we said, it has spawned some really interesting conversations. And even from my point of view of going, well, let me think about that. And have I, have I adequately unpacked that box? I'm not sure. I think we're still doing it every day, you know, and, and the, you know, she brings out the, the, the patriarchy again of the societal governmental, um, arena. She said, uh, the biblical, okay, I'm going to read a little bit. She says the biblical author was not resisting patriarchal social order, but rather helping Christians make patriarchy work well. And so that's kind of the, I guess, to summarize it, it's and again, that's how we're coming to scripture. We're saying this is what we have. How can we use scripture to make this make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and what I think you said in the beginning is, what if it just doesn't make sense? Right. What if it just doesn't make sense? And that's the, to me that that is a place where I have had to grow in my comfort mm-hmm. to question some of the orthodoxy that I have developed over the years, and it's very progressive orthodoxy at that, but it's still orthodoxy. But what if my problem really is with the Bible? Can I be critical towards the Bible? Can I be critical towards the figures within the Bible, the characters within the Bible, but still maintain my faith? And that is a delicate balance because sometimes it goes back and forth, just to be quite honest with you, that sometimes as I deconstruct this belief system and these structures, there are times where I end up deconstructing my faith. But then there are times where I feel like once I become comfortable in this deconstruction and this rejection of everything must be good and everything must be right and everything must be holy, that I get to a very human place. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's a good place to be. And that's a good place I want to be because it's a recognition of reality that in everything there's a yin and a yang, there's black and white, there's gray, there's good and bad, all of it. Let's just accept it all for what it is. Being comfortable and discomfort. We've said before. Yes, absolutely. So, so as you can tell, (laughs) it's fun a lot of conversation this week. Yes, we could go on and on, but now I have another task at hand and that is to figure out how to get biblical pornodoxy on a shirt (laughs) or in a saying. So coming summer of 2024. (laughs) I got to figure this out. (laughs) 
Let's put Kelly Chisholm on that. She can help us uh, with the artwork. That's right, Kelly. Figure that out. All right. Uh, Well, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for joining us this week. Again, uh, the book is a good book, How White Evangelicals Save the Bible to Save Themselves. Our guest this week was Dr. Jill Hicks-Keaton. We always appreciate you joining us for Good Faith Weekly. Until next week, keep living good faith. You've been listening to Good Faith Weekly, hosted by Mitch and Missy Randall. This weekly podcast from Good Faith Media discusses matters of faith and culture. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast and give us a like and a glowing review. We produce the podcast out of Norman, Oklahoma. Our music comes from Pond 5. And we're supported by listeners like you. Learn more about us at goodfaithmedia.org.